You're listening to The Grid, energy conversation for the serious. Welcome to episode three of The Grid, reliable, dispatchable, high-voltage discussion on energy from trusted sources. I'm Nick Cater. I'm the host of this podcast. And my guest this week is Meredith Angwin, who joins me from Wilder, Vermont, in the United States. I want to talk about to Meredith about her new book, Shortening the Grid, The Hidden Fragility of Our Electric Grid, and ask her for some help in getting heads around some important principles of electrical engineering and physics that I think we're in danger of forgetting this side of the world. Meredith, welcome to The Grid. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to have been asked to join you. You know, in the old days when we'd connect with somebody on the other side of the Pacific, we'd start with a bit of chit-chat about the weather, but we don't do that these days. We talk about our grids. I see you there in Vermont. You're in the you're in the independent op- system operation, I think it's called, is it, in the New York, and where you're, I can tell you your carbon intensity right now for that, whatever you're burning to run this computer and those lights, 299 grams yeah. per megawatt, I think that is, right? That's not a bad score, actually, I must say, compared to some people. And I see you're running a lot of gas. We, we're almost always more than 50% gas. A little bit of hydro there, 17%, I think, and almost 20% nuclear. That's fantastic. Yeah. And we also have, I haven't got it open in front of me, but we have imports also. And most of the imports come from, well, right now they're having lot of trouble up there but most of our imports come from hydro quebec and so they're they're generally hydro well i can tell you thanks to my favorite new app which is electricitymats.com that uh, you are you're getting about four percent of your power right now for ontario and and about three percent from quebec now ontario just across the border there is a bit of a hero electricity system and we might come to that later and talk about why that is but you mentioned it you give it a whole section in your book they're now 78 grams carbon intensity that's pretty good 86 percent low carbon they have been lower when i've looked at them recently but a lot of that of course is nuclear about 50 percent and 13 percent wind and then a big chunk of hydro 21 point six percent hydro and i want to come to this in a minute first uh, let's just swap stories and come back here to australia and have a look what's happening in new south wales right now and i tell you it won't be a pretty picture this is where i am in the state of new south wales capital of new south wales sydney 652 grams i bet you're in germany right now i bet you're getting right up there with poland Oh, we are. I don't think we're quite in Poland's league, but we're very close. We're 21% low carbon at the moment, and that's and the rest, coal and from one of the four power stations that are still open in New South Wales, they seem in a desperate hurry to shut them down, but 73% coal right now, 10% wind, tiny bit of hydro, 6%. But as you know, Australia, we don't have a lot of hydro because... <coughs> Number one, we're, we're not a particularly hilly country, and number two, we're not particularly full of rain. But there you go. Anyway, that's our picture. And I might just take, without getting sidetracked on this too long, take you across the border here into South Australia, where it's just 64 grams of carbon, 92% low carbon. But here's the thing, and I'd like you to perhaps comment on this. Right now in South Australia, they're running on 90% wind and the rest of it is a bit of gas there and some imported coal from Victoria. So 
when a state gets, when a grid is running on 90% wind, the alarm bells ring for me about the stability of that grid. Would you say, is that something that would worry you? Yes, it would. And one of the things about South Australia is that it has a huge area and not very many people. And so it can use wind more effectively than a more highly populated area. But it still is a problem because the wind is not steady. I mean, wind is intrinsically not steady. I mean, there are places where it blows fairly steadily, and I think that South Australia is one, but it can stop when it wants. It can lower, it can raise up so fast that to be so fast that the wind turbines have to back off a bit because it's when the wind is too high, it can actually destroy the wind turbines. So there's a sweet spot that the wind has to be in to make power. And, you know, it's in that a lot, but it there's no one on this earth that controls when it's in there. You mentioned there that they are in an unusual position having an awful lot of land and coastline and relatively few people, which is true, about 1.8 million, I think, is the population of South Australia. Now, why is that important when you're talking about wind? Is it simply because wind takes up so large an area to generate or is it something else going into that? Well there's a lot of different things but one is that wind has what you'd call low power density that is it takes a lot of area to generate a certain number of kilowatt hours and and it just takes a lot of area. Now you can often use that area for other things. For example, stock don't seem to mind grazing under a wind turbine. <laughs> but but if you don't have a large area that's usually that's arid and that is used for stock grazing and and you don't need a lot of kilowatt hours, then you know, you really can't use wind very much. I remember I was looking, I don't have it in front of me, and I really wish I'd boned up a little more on it. <laughs> but when I was looking at the South Afri- Australia grid, I remember thinking, wow, this doesn't actually have a lot of megawatts on it. I mean, for example, if you look at our grid here in New England, it's usually running 15,000 more or less megawatts. If you look at Texas, when they're using a lot of energy, they're running 30,000 megawatts. If you look at South Australia, I, I just remember thinking, that's not many megawatts. Now, I don't remember what it was, though. I can, I'll tell you it's about 2.4 gigawatts right okay. now. That's not a lot, right? Yeah, that's well, I mean, it's significant, but 2.4 gigawatts, like I, as I say, 15 to 30 is, is more like a lot of grids are, you know, not 2.4. If you think about 2.4 gigawatts, let's look at the Palo Verde nuclear plant in Arizona. It is, I believe, there's two units and they're over, between the two of them, they're over two gigawatts and it's in the middle of the desert. And it uses Phoenix's wastewater as its cooling water. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is a big plant, but on the other hand, it's, you know, it's just one of the many plants that serves Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico. 
We'll get back to the Australian grid in a moment. But first, let's hear your backstory, Meredith. You, you're a chemist. You worked in utilities for most of your life. Just tell yes. me how that went and how you got involved in the science of the grid. Well, I work. Well, when I was small, a little girl, I wanted to be a, a chem. I wanted to be a scientist, and it was sort of to help people. Okay, to help people, whatever that meant to me at the time. And also, I was really interested in science and always reading Isaac Asimov's nonfiction books in my spare time and so forth. So, I, when I got to college, I realized that if I it didn't have an engineering school where I was going to college. And I realized that if I went into physics, it was all very theoretical and all very, not a lot of hands-on. And it seemed like most of the physics students were looking for the theory of everything. And meanwhile, chemists, there was always a new discovery being made, some little new discovery, you know, and it just seemed like, oh, okay, if I join this, I don't have to be an absolute roaring genius to do some good. So that's why I went into chemistry. Then I got interested in, I, I made a friend who it became it was a rock hound and was interested in geology. And I had always been interested in geology. And I began like, hanging out with her and my husband and I used to go rock, with her rock hunting a bit and she she was actually doing her graduate work in a lab that did both geology and chemistry degrees so I said oh you know this is, this is fun so I went into the same lab and then I had degrees in like I didn't get my PhD I, I have masters and I was working in high temperature rock chemistry well that ended up translating into high temperature inorganic chemistry and utility type things like corrosion and pollution abatement and cleaning up H2S from geothermal plants and things like that. So I ended up doing a whole lot of different projects and different related jobs in the utility industry. And uh, then I started my own company, which did corrosion consulting. And then when I retired, semi-retired to Vermont, I got interested in, I, all this stuff was happening in California. I was with the Electric Power Research Institute in California. I think I was the third woman out of like 200 project managers they had. So it was really quite different for me in those days. So at any rate, when I came out to Vermont, because one of our sons was, our son was living in Vermont and our daughter was living in New York and California began to feel too far away, I began thinking about, well, yeah, I'd like to keep involved in this utility stuff. And I began, I was all, became pro-nuclear and I'm writing a blog about why we should keep our nuclear plant going. And somebody who's reading the blog contacts me and he says, you know, you should join the consumer liaison group of our grid operator. And I said, it has a consumer liaison group? He said, oh yeah, you should join it. So I joined it. And I feel like I hadn't known, I hadn't known anything about the utility industry until I joined that group. I just felt like even though I'd worked in renewables and geothermal, I'd worked on NOx control for gas turbines, I'd worked on corrosion control for various kinds of nuclear plants, all of a sudden I thought, oh, that's all this stuff, who knew? So anyway, I found it was very, I was also distressed that nobody seemed to be 
as concerned with the reliability of the grid as I would have liked to see them. Someone just recently on Twitter, someone described the system as everybody has their own sheepdog trying to push the flock one way or another. (laughs) (laughs) This idea of a flock with a bunch of competing sheepdogs. At any rate, that's how I began to see it, though I didn't have that analogy. And I began to think this isn't going to work. It's just Mm. not going to work. And I began writing a book about why the grid was fragile. And, and what is, let me just say for a moment, what is fragile? Fragile means easily broken. What I mean by that is someone will come to me and say, ha ha, there's a grid that isn't an RTO area and it had a blackout. And I said, right, <laughs> it could. <laughs> I mean, in other words, easily broken doesn't mean that one that, is not fragile will never break, but it does mean that the fragile one is gonna have more excitement. It's gonna be more interesting. It's gonna, it, and believe me, as a consumer, I want a dull grid. As a writer, of course, an interesting grid is great, but as a consumer, I want a dull grid, very boring grid. Exactly, and this is, I mean, I suppose like you, I haven't always been fascinated with electricity grids. It's something which has happened really as a, my work in a policy think tank because energy has become such a fraught area in recent years here in Australia. If you don't understand the grid, you don't understand it. Look, before we come back, I do want to pick up on your point about the fragility of the book and in, the fragility of the grid and your main themes of the book but first since we've got you on and we don't often get a chance to talk geothermal here this sounds like an opportunity given your background I mean I see when I was flicking through the other day I've just called it up again now Iceland is running on 28% geothermal right now and very low carbon emissions 38 grams or equivalent of carbon per kilowatt hour so what is the potential for it and I guess the point is it is only certain parts of the world where it's useful, right? I believe that there are only certain parts of the world that it's useful. There are a lot of people who are claiming right now that enhanced geothermal can be useful in more areas, and it can perhaps be useful in more areas. But when you get right down to it, you don't, using just the usual geological gradient to get heat, that is, you know, I'm here in Vermont, and if you keep digging down and it'll get hotter eventually it isn't it isn't efficient or effective what you need basically is some magma down there so basically you need to be in a place that's geologically active for example the biggest geothermal system in the united states is in the geysers in california in a in an area that certainly is near santa rosa and it definitely has earthquakes and it has hot springs and i mean it has all the other things that you would expect from a geologically active low-level volcanism area. And Iceland, my goodness, Iceland is amazing. Iceland is right on the Atlantic Ridge where things, magma's always welling up and making new islands. And I mean, it's the Mid-Atlantic Ridge is not your typical place. Iceland is very effective and has been, I mean, it's amazingly effective at using it's the geothermal resource. And I think that's great, but I don't think we can all point to Iceland 
and say, hey, I'm a, I'm a, we just got to do what they do because we can't. Well, the nearest example to here, I guess, is New Zealand, which has right now running on about 12% geothermal, and then a whole lot of hydro, 71.5%, and uh, we don't have their their opportunities with hydro, and we certainly don't with geothermal. So those two sources are not open to us. But this is something I want to pick up right at the start, that if you go around the world, there's a pattern emerges in countries that have low-carbon electricity systems, New Zealand being one, Iceland, Ottawa, you know, we've been through the places where it's happening. There's something to me seems glaringly obvious. Every one of them has either a lot of a natural resource like hydro or geothermal or is using it in combination with nuclear. And countries like France, which use less hydro, use a lot more nuclear. Now, that's true, isn't it? So no country has got to a low-carbon electricity grid using anything else to do the heavy lifting other than hydro, a little bit of geothermal in some cases, but nuclear being the big one. Yes, I mean, there's a really nice book about that called A Bright Future, and he basically goes around the world and says, you know, if you want to know how people have actually decarbonized their grid, not the press releases, but the low-carbon grids, then you're going to have to be looking at nuclear and hydro. And I guess you could also throw in geothermal in the areas that are good for geothermal. So Australia, our current plan... The current government plan is to get to zero emission grid using a little bit of hydro, the little bit that we have, and then a lot of renewables. The government's target is 82% renewable generation by 2030. That's it's not going to happen. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be negative, but when things can't happen, they don't happen. And I just feel that's really important to keep grounded in that because you hear a lot of, I don't know, public relations would be, I guess, the kindest way to put it. A lot of public relations statements about how we're going to get to this level or that level. And, you know, there's a new blogger out there and he doesn't share his name. And he calls his blog, which is about partially about the difficulties of using a lot of renewables, he calls it Green Leap Forward in parallel to the great leap forward that the Chinese did, which basically led to nothing but starvation and misery. Well, that's a great phrase. I'm going to borrow that. Look, Meredith, (laughs) let me go. I want to go over this point again, and I want to emphasise, first of all, that you have no interest in Australian politics, I would think. I don't even know who's running for what. I have no clue. I not only have no interest, I have no clue. You don't know who our Prime Minister is. You don't know which party is running the government or from what side of politics they would come. Well, I guess I could look it up. And I have to say that my husband's family is traditionally from, they're from Cornwall and they're traditionally involved with mining. And so, you know, we actually, there are Anguins in Australia. There are, yeah. Well, we had a lot of Cornish people come over and mine copper and tin. Because of the mines, absolutely. Mm. There was but, a diaspora all over the world. Well, anyway, what I'm trying to say is, no, I don't know your politics. <laughs> I just want to get this absolutely clear because I'm associated with a think tank that's aligned with the Liberal Party, which is what you might think of as a Conservative or Republican Party. It's now in opposition here. We have a Labour Party 
or a centre-left party in power. But I want so people would say that I'm, I've got a political bit of political baggage. But you've got none. You're coming at this simply as an as a scientist, as somebody who understands the engineering. This you think we are kidding ourselves if we can get to eighty-two percent renewables and keep the lights on? Do you? Yes, I do. I think so. I mean. At one point, you know, in my book, I I quote one system where I point out that for every megawatt of renewables on a grid, worldwide, the average is you have to have a little over a megawatt of fast-acting backup for it. And so what that means is that the renewables have to have the backup, which means you have to have the gas plants or the hydro. It's not... The renewables can go offline so quickly that steam plants are not good backups for renewables. Steam plants like coal and nuclear can load follow very well, but they can't back up the sun drop in the wind very easily. So anyhow, yeah, let me say that I don't think that it's going to happen. And I do fear that if you don't, if you don't, accept reality and making progress instead of having a goal like, oh, in five years, we're going to be 100% renewable, then what's going to happen is you're not going to be able to plan for progress. I mean, progress is the best you can do. This business of like, it's all going to happen in the next six years. That's unrealistic. Well, we is it... We may connect up in 2030, and I may tell you that you were wrong in Australia that's been the first country in the world that's achieved this, but somehow I think not. But let's go back to your book. On, I'll just read you just an extract from the back cover. Grid insiders know how fragile the grid is becoming. Unfortunately, they have no incentive to solve the problems because near misses increase their profits. So here's the point, and we see this in Australia all the time. Insiders, people you talk to in the, in, in the energy sector whether they're, you know, pushing renewables or whether they're steady old-fashioned chaps who do coal and gas, they all know that the system is very shaky, that the grid is going to struggle even more than it has once we start to withdraw coal on the schedule which has been outlined. But nobody says so, right? And this is because you say that they're basically making money anyway. Well, yes. Now... I gather that in Australia, you have a market system, an auction system, similar to the ones we have here. Yeah. And the and yours got so messed up that they shut it down for a few days, which was kind of interesting, which yeah. shows that you don't need the auction system because all you need is the balancing authority and the grid keeps going, the people who are actually dispatching plants to meet load. But at any rate, the way the auction systems work, there's a clearing price. And so they're very odd. They're not an auction in the sense that we use it going for five, going for 10. If you have like four plants on the grid, imagine a grid with four plants, and one of them can make power at five cents per kilowatt hour, one can make power at 10 cents, one can make power at 15 cents, and one can make power at 20 cents, okay? So if the grid operator says, gosh, we have a lot of demand, and we're going to have to get all you plants on here, 
It will, the grid operator will then say, and the 20 cent plant is setting the clearing price. All plants get 20 cents. Okay. Mm. If there's less demand on the grid, then perhaps the 20 cent plant doesn't have to go on. And so only the five, 10 and 15 cent plants go on. And then the grid operator says, okay, the 15 cent plant has set the clearing price. And now all of you are getting 15 cents per kilowatt hour. So you see the top price, that's the clearing price. Now, if you were a plant, let's say you're just an ordinary little plant, maybe you're the 10 cent plant. Do you want the grid to be stressed so they put on expensive plants or do you want it to be nice and easy going so that maybe you're setting the clearing price? You want it to be stressed so that they're putting on any expensive plants they can get their little hands on. That's how Texas grid went up to, I think it was $9 per kilowatt hour for a while, $9,000 per megawatt hour. Yeah. Yeah. We see crazy prices like that here from time to time, those stress points in the day, principally the late afternoon, for obvious reasons. So what you're saying is, if I'm running, you know, I've got a small, well, let's say I've got a large solar plant running in in New South Wales here, and I've got the potential to put, you know, maybe 250 megawatts into the system if I want to, but I might choose not to, right? I might choose to put a bit less in because I want the I want, actually want to engineer a bit of a shortage or a bit of a, 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 a excess demand over supply so that the price goes up. Is that what you're saying? Well, you would want to. I would say that in general, the people do it. <laughs> but supposedly, the grid, each grid actually has, not just supposedly, and somebody, a group called an independent market monitors that are supposed to be watching for this and reporting it to the grid operator and that you could get fined or something if you do it. But my experience is that they're not very effective, that I think there is more manipulation going on than they report. But, and it certainly was the case back in California in 2001 uh, when we had rolling blackouts. It was basically there were plants that all of a sudden were having outages for maintenance. Who knew? You know, oddly enough, the price kept going up as they went out. If you own four plants and you can take one off for maintenance at a time when the grid is stressed, the other three are going to make a lot of money and you're not going to have to buy gas for that plant that's offline. Yeah, and there's evidence that that happens, at least you follow the pattern on the grid and you suspect it might. Now, let's step back a bit. Before we had RTOs, which is, I mean, an RTO for an Australian audience is what the equivalent of our Australian energy market operator, which okay. is there to balance the national energy market, the national electricity market, amongst I, a lot I of other things. Call it the auction system or the market system, energy market system, really, because it, I, RTO is a, is a very American term. Yeah, but before that, we had basically energy production companies that were vertically integrated, and they actually had an incentive in keeping supply reliable, didn't they, as opposed to now when they've got an incentive not to keep it reliable. Yeah, they have an incentive to keep it reliable because they they get – there are two, two sides of the incentive. There's the carrot and the stick. The carrot is – the, 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 the Public Utility Commission will allow them to have a rate of return on any investment they make that they can justify as, you know, keeping the grid reliable. And so, for example, if they add a million dollars worth of equipment 
then they can get 5% of a million dollars in profits allowed. Now, some people said, well, this is how you get a gold-plated grid. They have every incentive to spend as much money as possible. But the PUCs were appointed by elected officials, and they didn't like the prices to go up, so the PUCs would push back at that quite a bit. Then that, that was the carrot. The stick, on the other hand, was if you had a lot of outages, then the PUCs would find you. They'd say... You know, you're not working up to snuff here. You're not working up to the level that we expect and that other grids like ours have. You're going to be fined. And, you know, a big fine just really can mess up your, your, your rate of return. It can mess up your profits. So the vertically integrated utilities had were pushing to do more, that is to gold plate the grid, and they were pushing to keep it very reliable so they didn't get fined. So supposedly you would end up with a very reliable, very expensive grid. Unfortunately, what has happened is in the RTO areas, the grid has gotten to be more expensive than in the vertically integrated areas of the United States. And it's really hard to figure out what the heck happened here, but it did happen. It's counterintuitive, but the customer the customer prices in the in the auction areas turn out to be higher than the customer prices in the vertically integrated areas that everybody would say, well, that's your gold-plated grid. So our national electricity market, which I think is it's the longest grid in the world, I mean, it stretches over a huge distance from right from the north, far north of Queensland down to the southern tip of South Australia. Now... That was set up in 1999, right? Just I think just before your RTO system started coming yes. in the States. Yes. And uh, it, it did actually reduce retail prices very slightly for a bit and because for the first time you had, you know, you're introducing more competition between states and, uh, and generators. But then in 2007, from 2007 onwards, particularly 2007, 2013, retail prices rise very steeply. Now, why was that? That 2007, incidentally, was the time when we really started to get very enthusiastic about renewable energy. When they started to introduce a 20% 20 renewable energy target, we had renewable energy certificates for producers, which was an incentive to produce wind and solar. And once we started to introduce renewable energy into the grid, the prices went up. In fact, retail prices doubled in six years. So my question is, is that merely coincident or can we see something happening there once you start to introduce renewables into a grid? There's a, it isn't a coincidence. There are a lot of different things that force the price up when they're renewable. So the first and the simplest one is that the renewables generally add capital costs to the grid but they don't really subtract it. In other words, you add a wind turbine, well, you still have to have a backup of the same size for when the wind dies down. So perhaps you had the backup there originally, and now you've added the wind turbine, but you're not getting more capacity, really, for that extra money. You're just getting, you know, a choice of which of the two capacities you use, but you're not really getting, you know, more power available for so the same size grid will have higher capital costs okay the other thing is that the grid will be oh i don't know 
how to say, your backup plants are going to be stressed because they're going to be going on and off in a way that they would prefer not to do. Because, you know, when you've got something really hot, you want to keep it hot and you want to keep it moving along smoothly. I mean, all you have to think about is think about how much gas a kid that's hitting the gas and then, oh, I'm going too fast, I'm hitting the brake, then we're hitting the gas, then I'm hitting the brake. It's going to use a lot more gas than, than a, a drug who's conscious of trying to keep the car at a steady pace as much as they can with the traffic. Or imagine, imagine a semi rolling along. If it has to go through the city and stop a lot, it's going to use more gas, a lot more gas per mile to start itself up. So that's one, those are two things that are just sort of physical things. And there's a third thing, which is that the most renewable energy is partially supported by subsidies. And the subsidies sometimes end up on your taxpayer's bill, but they often end up in your, in your electricity bill. For example, if the renewable facility can make some of its money by selling a renewable energy certificate, It'll, who will it sell it to? It'll sell it to a utility that's required to prove that it's buying a lot of renewable energy. So it sells the certificate to a utility, and then the utility has to pay for the certificate, and then puts the price of that certificate into some of it, its overhead account. It can't usually put it into its energy account because, well, it depends on the rules. But basically, what I'm saying is this, it, it didn't purchase energy. You see, it purchased a certificate. And then there's this whole thing about, you know, bundled or unbundled renewable energy, the renewable energy that you buy with its certificate or you buy the certificate separately. But what I'm trying to say is all of a sudden you've got, for the renewable plant, you've got two income streams coming for one kilowatt hour. And for the customer, the end user, the, the rate payer, you've got two charges coming for the same kilowatt hour yeah well that's right and we've seen periods and instances where it seems that energy companies or renewable energy companies seem mainly in business to trade certificates they and to earn them trade certificates that's their product if you like and secondarily to produce electricity and you know in the middle of the day here commonly most days of the week they'll be giving actually paying people to take the electricity off them on some days. So yes, there, it's, a, it's another perverse incentive in the market and companies just respond, you know, as economically rational operators. That's right. And it, is, it can be a very perverse incentive because if you make the electricity and you have to dump it for you could pay someone to take it, you can still come out ahead if you get paid enough for the certificate. And so, you know... The provider isn't being, if I built a big restaurant and it only failed halfway, then I'd probably lose money because I had invested in this, over-invested in this restaurant. But that doesn't happen very much with renewables because once they've got the restaurant there, then they're getting these certificates. In other words, they don't have to sell food. (laughs) sell certificates. Anyway, that's basically it. So I just wanted to, I mean, you're doing a very good job, Meredith, of skewering some of the nonsense in the debate here. There's a lot of discussion here at the moment about 
the CSIRO's GenCost report, CSIRO being our our government-supported science and technology organisation with a very good history, I must say. They they invented Wi-Fi, would you believe? You wouldn't have Wi-Fi now if it wasn't for our CSIRO. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> Uh, but, but they're not so strong on energy, I think. In, they produce a GenCost report looking at the... And this will give you a clue as to why this might be a bit iffy. It's, a, it's the levelised cost of electricity from various sources. And according to them, and the current government makes a lot of this, the cheapest form of electricity by a long way is wind and solar coal and gas more expensive and the most expensive according to them is nuclear this has caused some concern i mean we think they're dead wrong but why would they come up with the conclusion that renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy there is given oh. what you've said what you've just described about the cost well, you see they're just looking at it from the point of view of how much it gets paid on the auctions and since they're subsidized the renewable energy can bid into the auctions at zero cents per kilowatt hour because they're going to get, in, in, in America, they get production tax credits plus they get to sell a wreck. Okay, so they don't need to make any money from their kilowatt hour. And the same is true of the wind, okay? It, it can make money just from the wrecks and production tax credits. So if you look at the price that they bid into the auctions, they are absolutely the less expensive. There, there's no question about it because they don't have to. Now, you, if, you have to get into all this very arcane stuff about on American auctions where you can watch all the renewable people, renewable providers, fighting what's called the MOPR rule, which is minimum offer price rule. The fear was that the renewables, because they were bidding in at zero, would force everything that needed to make money by selling kilowatt hours off the grid. And so there was a rule, it's a kind of an arcane rule, it's about capacity markets. But basically the idea was you don't get to bid in at your subsidized price. You have to bid it at your actual price. And my goodness, you'd think that they were being murdered. You know, you're trying to kill nuclear, you're trying to kill renewables by having us bid in at our actual price. And I'm like, oh, okay. But many, at any rate, the levelized cost of electricity is not a very good marker because it doesn't take into account the subsidies. And it also doesn't take into account the fact of backup or other services. For example, if you're in, in the America, some of the best wind is off on the Great Plains. And that's also a very low population area. So if you want wind turbines and you want to supply that wind to areas of population, you're going to have to put in large new transmission lines, which are going to be expensive. So that's a cost that isn't accounted for. Or the fact that you've got to, remember I said that you need one, a little more than one megawatt backup for each megawatt of renewables. Well, nobody's accounting the cost of the system cost of keeping that backup ready to run. So the renewables only count their costs and they end up adding a whole bunch of other 
cost to the end user. <laughs> yeah. So, so in in Australia right now, the latest figures we have available on this, the cost of electricity, say the average household bill is $1,600 a year. Of that, 557 is generation. So 35% of what you pay in your bill is the actual cost of generation. Environmental levies account for another 9%. But the largest cost driver, the biggest factor is transmission, $720. That's 45% of what your electricity bill. So if you don't count transmission, then you're going to get a very skewed figure, aren't you, as you say. But you know, what, So what do you make of this, our, our current plans that the, the government, which I've already alluded to, we need to triple the amount of renewable energy in the system by 2030. That's just seven years' time. And this will involve the construction of 10,000 kilometres of new transmission lines to do exactly as you say. You have to get electricity from more remote spots to connect up into the grid and get it to the cities. That's a big expense. Nobody's really costed that, but the government's talking about $20 billion from them. <laughs> Again, is this a feasible way to proceed or should we be looking for a plan B? Well, I would say look for plan B. Let, let me also say that one of the big things that we were discussing a lot about here is the, the difficulty of putting in a transmission line. Now, it may be different in Australia. I don't know. You have a lot of area that's, I, I guess, called the, the outback where there's sheep stations and things. And probably nobody's going to be fighting the transmission lines in those areas. I don't know. Maybe they are. But around here, in many areas in the east, you know, putting a transmission line in. We have been trying to put in transmission lines from Quebec for at least 20 years, and we may be about to get one going. But the trouble is that people say, no, we don't want that line. I mean, it's going to take power from Quebec and deliver it to Boston, and we're going to have to look at it, and we're going to have to knock down our forests to look at it. Excuse me, what do you want? You're not, you're not building it. And so in the east, where everything is rather close together and heavily populated, then you have this problem. In the west, you have a different problems. For example, you might find that you're going attempting to get from A to B. You're going to go through National Forest, Bureau of Land Management land, private land, uh, land designed to uh, indigenous people, etc. You're going to have all these different jurisdictions with all kinds of different issues. And it's one of these things where everybody can say no. Yeah, and I mean... The fact is, there is a lot of opposition in Australia, and the, you know, if we wanted to build a transmission line from, say, you know, Alice Springs to Udnadatta, it would probably wouldn't be too much bother. But we don't actually want to send a lot of power to Udnadatta. I think they've got a population of about twelve or something. So, but where we do want to send power, of course, in the southeastern states, across Victoria, for instance, from you know to connect Victoria to New South Wales, a new transmission line across the River Murray. You are running through populated areas where people own farms, where they have communities that they're proud of and they like the landscapes as they are. It, it's just an inherent problem, isn't it? And you say 20 years to get something done. Well, we're trying to do it in seven. I would have thought that's a bit ambitious. Well, I think that it's going to be an absolute miracle if you can even do it in 20 I'm sorry to say that. I mean, just it's just quite amazing because... the. There are so many different issues with it. But one of the things is the people who are near the line don't usually benefit from the line. 
You know, in other words, if you build something near me and I'm going to benefit from it, I'm going to say, oh, there's a trade-off here. But if you're going to build something near me that's going to, you know, going to benefit people that live very different lives from mine in a city 400 miles away, I maybe I won't want it to happen. Because even in a country as big as Australia, with as few pop- population, few people, you very quickly run out of land, actually. So in Victoria, where they've looked at how much land would be needed if they wanted to power the entire, the whole of Victoria on renewable energy alone, they're talking about 70%, 70% of farmland in the state of Victoria, which is one of our most productive farming states, would be taken up with solar panels, transmission lines and wind turbines. Clearly crazy, right? At some point, what I don't understand is why don't they don't just say, well, let's look for something else. Yes, I agree. And I'm going to say this is this is something that's a real problem, putting, putting these things, putting putting especially solar on farmland is a problem. And, you know, I saw this a long time ago, but I didn't write about it. I wasn't writing about it at the time. But there, there was an article in my local paper about this guy who was very proud of what he was doing with his home. And he said, I, I've got a whole bunch of solar panels now in the area where I used to grow tomatoes. And I thought, well, of course, tomatoes need a lot of sun. So that would be a perfect place for solar panels. And I guess from his point of view, you can just go buy tomatoes at the store. But I mean, at some point, somebody has to grow the tomatoes. So I, what I'm trying to say is one part of me said, grow the tomatoes. You can make electricity a gazillion ways, but there's only one way to grow a tomato. I mean, you could grow it in a greenhouse also, but what I mean is the tomato has to grow somewhere with light. That's right. You, you know, you've already said you, you don't take a lot of interest in Australian politics. Why would you? There's much more edifying things around the world to appreciate. But you did know, and when I exchanged emails with you, you were aware of something I think a lot of Australians wouldn't be aware of, and that was the suspension of the wholesale electricity spot market in the whole of the national energy market, which covers four mainland states, for what from June 22nd last year sorry 15th of June last year at 2 p.m until 24th of June to nine days so for nine days this wonderful market which is supposed to control our energy distribution balance the grid was suspended that some of us thought that was extraordinary at the time we were surprised it got so little coverage in the newspapers but basically it was suspended because the grid was close to collapse and they couldn't see any other way of managing it than sort of under emergency measures have you come across anything like that anywhere else in the world or is that a an australian first no i don't it's an australian first in that the market was suspended. Grids have come close to collapse many places. I mean, Texas, a large part of it really collapsed during that winter storm. 
I mean, they didn't, they wanted to cut load down because they didn't have enough generating capacity and all this sort of thing. And so they were going to institute rolling blackouts where they cut load here for a while and then they turn it back on and then they cut load in another place for a while and then they turn it back on. So nobody actually loses their power for more than maybe four hours. What, they couldn't turn it back on. I mean, in other words, they ended up with areas that were, that were without power for two days. And so in that case, I would say that it, the grid was close to collapse. But what Australia did was suspending the markets was a little bit different than has happened to other places. So it was very interesting to me because I was like, I've always thought that the markets are so shaky that, you know, it wouldn't take much to knock them over, but it, they never get knocked over. I mean, the power gets, gets suspended sometimes. And you also said that everything was suspended. It couldn't have been. Because if it had been all suspended, then you wouldn't have had power. You would, your balancing authority people, the people that balance the demand and the supply, they must have still been working. Oh, they, they were working very hard, I think. And the yes, very hard. The market part of them, the market part of trying to figure out, are we dispatching the lowest price plant right now? Maybe they weren't concerned with that, but they were mm. definitely balancing supply and demand. They had to be. I was. It was real high wire act, Meredith. You know, they, we had gas generators run by Snowy Mountain, the Snowy Mountain company that were running virtually twenty four hours a day. These are peaking generators, right? They're not designed to run that day. Right. And the only way they could run them for that length of time was to convert them to diesel because they wouldn't have enough gas to, in one instance, they've only got eight hours supply of gas before they run out. So that, knowing that, that seemed to me at the time to be extraordinary, but it sounds like a pretty panicky measure from afar, I guess. It will, and it is extraordinary. And, but under extraordinary weather conditions, there are times that, for example, in in New England, that if we've run auxiliary diesel generators that happen to be at a power plant to help it start up, we've, we've run them and connected them to the grid. I mean, you know, so it, sometimes it's every possible source of electricity get on the grid if you possibly can. I think that the, it, to me, the interesting thing was suspending the markets. That was, mm. I mean, that I have not heard of anyone doing. Though you could claim that the the grid operator in Texas just declared that the price would be $9,000 per megawatt hour. He declared it basically and didn't let the price drop. They didn't let the price drop because they wanted to put enough incentive out there to get everything on online that could get online. So in a way, the market was suspended, but not quite the same way. It was sort of, it was sort of rewarded. <laughs> it sounds rather like the Uber market, doesn't it? They surge the price to get more drivers out. But, but look, I mean, this is the point which I... I really want to come to in your book because it seems so blindingly obvious and yet we've forgotten about it here. There is such a thing as baseload power, isn't there? There is a need for baseload power. Here in Australia, that's become almost a sort of politically incorrect word now. We're not supposed to say it because it, you know, discriminates against renewables, you know. But without it, you're stuffed. (laughs) 
in no, essence. And, and let's look at it this way. Let's take all the, the politics out of it and just say that the grid has a varying demand and some of the demand is always there for 24 hours a day, okay? And that is usually called the base demand or the base load. It has to be met. The base load, the amount of demand that's there 24 hours a day has to be met. And then there's a load, there's demand goes up when people get up in the morning and the demand goes down at night and so forth and so on. But in the middle of the night or at three in the morning, there's still demand on the grid and that demand has to be met. Now, it turns out that I, a friend of mine was doing some analysis of the, of the New York state grid, not just the city, but the state. And it isn't in the book, I'm sorry to say. But it turns out that about 60% of the electricity that's made is made on is a base load. It's the electricity that's there 24 hours a day. And if you think about it, imagine that you, you need... 10 something 24 hours a day and then in the middle of the day it goes up to 20 for like eight hours so you have 10 times 24 and then you have another 10 times eight so of course the 10 times 24 the base load is more power being made and i've been thinking a lot about that base load it's often the most essential power i mean Mm. in other words it's the power that keeps the hospitals going, that keeps the refrigerators going in your food store and in your home. It keeps the water treatment plants going. It keeps the industrial processes that can't shut down going. I mean, nobody runs baseload just because they want to. You know, when I turn on a light, in a way, I have an option. Do I want to turn on a light or don't I? I mean, do I want to turn on the TV and watch something or don't I? But the things that are running 24-7, they're often not very optional. I've been thinking about that a lot because people are too so scornful of baseload power. That's your grandfather's grid, you know, and it isn't. Or imagine another thing analogy I make is that a baseload power, they say, well, it's not flexible. Okay. How flexible is a semi? Not very flexible. I mean... It's slow to accelerate. It's you don't want to be in front of it if it has to stop suddenly. I mean, you know, it's not a flexible item. A, a, a big, a big eighteen-wheeler. But why do we have them then? Because they're very cost-effective and efficient for moving big loads. Similarly, over the course of the years of having grids, we decided that very cost-effective and efficient is the way to run that 24-hours type demand. Yeah. And for heavy industrial processes, of course, it's essential. If you stop power to an aluminium plant, you basically kill the plant in half an hour. But the, the, there's a lot of talk here about green hydrogen, and which, from my reading, seems to be some years away if we ever get there. But we, one thing we will need to produce green hydrogen is power, a lot of it, all the time, because you can't stop and start a hydrogen plant just because the sun goes down. So this seems to be forgotten from the equation that we're not going to... It's a pipe dream unless we can get not only a lot of electricity, but cheap electricity, because we'll be competing against other countries in the world on this. And that can't be done, as far as I can see, with wind and solar. Well, I have 
I feel that there's a lot of, of kind of, I don't even want to call it craziness about some of these things, where, for example, we're encouraged to save energy every possible place we can, save electricity uh, and so forth. And, and at the same time, we're going to electrify everything and we're going to make green hydrogen with electricity. And I'm like, wait a minute, you know, am I supposed to cut my use of lighting because we're going to make green hydrogen? I mean, I just don't, I don't even understand how people can say both things at the same time, that we're going to use lots more electricity because we're going to have electric, electric heat pumps in the house and we're going to have we're going to have electric stoves and we're going to have electric transportation and we're going to have green hydrogen made with electricity. Meanwhile, the most important thing we can do is save electricity and use less of it. I mean, people can say both those things in one speech. But it doesn't mean that I be- I think they're sane. <laughs> <laughs> just to conclude, uh, just on, on baseload very quickly. So for Australia, right, we need baseload. I don't know whether you want to hesitate as a guess, whether it's 50, 60, 70% of our capacity should be baseload. I'd say it's probably nearer 70 or 80, but let's leave that to one side. What are our options? Well, coal, we know that's no longer an option because... Not only have we signed the Paris Accords, but we, you know, it's very hard to get, almost impossible to get financing to right. even renovate an old coal-fired plant, let alone start a new one. So coal is not on the table. Gas, well, theoretically, but again, you've got the same problems with emissions, even though they're about half what they are of coal. So what are our options? Hydro, I think we could count as a baseload power, providing you've got enough of it and you manage the water supply well so that you're not caught out by a drought, right? Geothermal. Have I missed anything as a, a, well, a potential? Nuclear. <laughs> I was coming to that one. I was leave, <laughs> leaving that till last. <laughs> we will talk about that next. But the but basically, you know, we talk here a lot about batteries, you know, Tesla batteries, big batteries. We can't consider those base load. In fact they're not sources of energy at all, are they? They're just storage. Similarly, pumped hydro, there's a lot of talk of that here. It's not going too well at the moment, but that's not – we can't consider that baseload. That's just, no. again, just storage. No, it's storage. People put way too much faith in batteries, not realising that they are not actually a source of electricity. They're a storage mechanism. Yeah. But I really don't know what – the options are, I mean, the thing is, if you look at the options one way, through the lens of like, we have to use less and less electricity, and it all has to come from wind and solar and hydro, and we don't have much hydro, then you don't have very many options. But if so, you're going to use nuclear, and also, I really, I'm going to be kind of a little odd here, but I'm going to say that I don't like using natural gas so much. First of all, it's just-in-time delivery. It's, it's a little more, fra- it's more fragile than nuclear or coal because it's not stored on site usually. And so if there's a problem in the pipe, you, as has happened many times, you can't get it. But the other thing is it's just a wonderful fuel. It's a wonderful fuel for houses to, without a lot of pollution. 
It's a wonderful fuel for many situations in which you really can't tolerate much pollution. And as a little girl, I'm an old lady now, but as a little girl, I grew up in Chicago. And Chicago, where I lived on the south side, had a lot of three-story apartment buildings that each burned coal. And it was a really polluted area. It was, I mean, people can't even imagine how polluted it was. But then all of a sudden we got natural gas. I'm like, whoa, look at this. It's, you can see down the street. I mean, and also you don't have to walk around the coal pile that the coal truck dumped on the sidewalk and then somebody's going to come in and shovel it into the, into the coal chute to the basement. I mean, it is... It was a wonderful, and I don't like the idea that we're burning it up when we could use things that are less flexible, and less mm. flexible is like coal and nuclear. You know, they're not; they're only good for making heat. And anyway, so that's my little well, rant. Yeah, and I thought you did a very good job in the book. You explained something which I hadn't really got my head around, and that is that at times of heavy demand, say there's a, you know, hot, a, a heat wave here and everybody's turning up their air conditioners and people are using more gas and so forth around the, around the place, then you, it is hard to get a pump enough gas into a, a peaking plant or a, a gas-fired plant to keep it operating at high capacity, right? So you do, it, it doesn't really solve your fragility, is what you're saying. No, it doesn't solve the fragility. The way that fragility gets solved in those circumstances is that basically you build a, a dual-fired plant and you keep some oil on site, <laughs> which is uh, the whole winter reliability project that I describe in the book. So all roads lead to nuclear. Now, first of all, what do you think of the fact that Australia is not only not used, it's illegal to even think about using nuclear power in this country, although we have nuclear medicine, and we're shortly to have, we hope, nuclear-powered submarines, thanks to the Americans and the British. But we don't... It's actually outlawed, not only in federal law, but at state law for use in power generation. How nutty is that? Well, it is nutty, but I think that it came about in an earlier era where people were very concerned with coal workers losing their jobs. And I'm not saying that it, it's not a concern, but jobs are much more varied now. And I think that the idea that we would use nuclear and we wouldn't be using as much coal is not as big a deal now. I, or maybe it isn't. But the thing is, you could still have as much mining as you wanted because China will buy all the, China and Pakistan will buy as much coal as you can send them, I suspect. And just across the border from you in in Ontario, the construction of a small modular reactor, this is fourth generation nuclear, is about to begin. What do you think of small modular reactors and their potential? I think they have a great deal of potential. And I think one of the reasons they have a great deal of potential is simply that they're small. And what I mean by that is that, you know, that you could buy two of them and add two more. And while if you look at the nuclear reactors began getting bigger and bigger and bigger and getting more and more expensive. And pretty soon they become extraordinarily expensive. And also only some kinds of grids can take that. You only want every power plant on a grid should not be more than about 10% of the grid because you don't want to have to 
shut down the whole grid if the power plant goes out. And so you have a grid and it has a capacity of about, I don't know, it's a certain number of and then it, uh, uh, power plants, and then you have 20% more capacity. So if something's wrong with one of the existing power plants, you can pull in the extra power plants. Well, the extra power plants are expensive, so you don't want to pull in very many of them. So what you do is you have everything is 10% of the grid, so that if it, or less, so that if one of them goes off, the extra power plants are very available for it. If something was 40% of the grid, what do you got to do? You're going to have to have 40% extra power plants for if that one goes down. So I, I tend to think that the whole business of how the nuclear reactors got bigger and bigger was actually a bad thing. And, and that it, we should have been building power plants that are between 300 and 600 megawatts all along. And because they would fit in many places and so forth. But people didn't, and there were reasons they didn't. And one of the reasons, of course, is the whole issue of well, you have to build a substation and transmission for each of these plants, so you might as well build a big plant. And that, that, that is true, but there are people think that size will make things cheaper but only up to a certain extent when you get to the sizes that the some of the recent nuclear plants are it does not get cheaper to make such big forgings yeah and so for australia we spoke at the start about the peculiarities of the energy system here we have a massive grid in terms of the length of the transmission lines that have to run but small, relatively small in terms of the actual quantity of electricity we pump around. In that sort of situation, it sounds to me as small modular reactors are the perfect solution, near enough. I agree with you. Because then you can put, you know, two of them here and four of them there and one of them over there and you, you don't need as much transmission and you keep your grid very steady. Yeah, and if you do what they're doing at Darlington Point in Ontario, you, there it's being sited on an existing nuclear power plant, but if we did the same here, put them on the sites of existing coal plants, you've got all the wires ready to hook up, you've probably got the substation too. Bob's your uncle, right? You're away. Yeah, absolutely. And we're doing mm. that here. I mean, and we are beginning to do that here in the sense that there's a plant that's going to be going in Wyoming at the site of a nuclear plant going in at the site of a shutdown coal plant. And of course, Ontario put in nuclear plants. I don't know if they were on the site of the coal plants, but I do know that they shut down all their coal plants and they put in nuclear plants. So was- very happy position people of Ontario are in, I think, you you describe in your book, you give it a whole little section towards the end of your book as being, it's no such thing as the perfect grid, you say, but this is probably as near the perfect one I've got. Apart from the nuclear, obviously, which when you look, it just ticks along very nicely, about 50%, it just keeps the whole thing running comfortably. But apart from that, there's a few technical things, and there's one I want to pick up because I think this is important in the Australian control the controlling circumstances that there's no they don't prioritize calls on renewables in the way they do in australia that's the first cab off the rank when they're looking for electricity and they have a floor price so the problem in australia as you probably know is renewables get the call whenever they're operating so that means that coal and gas go down the pecking order and it makes eventually makes coal and gas so unprofitable that it you know, the, the companies start closing down their power plants and that's been happening here. And it seemed to me 
when we make the decision to have nuclear, because we'll have to be a when, I think, we're going to face the same problem. You know, I mean, the incentive to put capital into nuclear plants here is considerably diminished if you're just going to be the last one off the rank. So if we could somehow do away with that pecking order and actually have a floor price, which I guess helps protect the right. baseload providers, that may be the way we need to go. Do you think so? I think it would be the best way. I mean, I really I really think that Ontario has a, a good system there. But, I mean, I don't know enough about Australia, but I would say the floor price to project the nuclear project the baseload plants from being unable to do what they do best, which is be baseload, and also protect them from being forced to cycle and therefore being worn out more rapidly. I think that, yes, that floor price in Ontario is very good. And Ontario has a beautifully clean grid. I mean, I just really admire the Ontario. They used to be just a lot of coal, just a lot of coal. Well, Meredith, thank you very much for that extended conversation. Um, it's been absolutely charming, as is your book, I have to say. I never thought I'd say that a book on the electricity market and the technicalities of the grid would be a fascinating read, but it is Shortening the Grid, The Hidden Fragility of Our Electricity Grid, published by... Carno Communications, but of course you can buy it like everything these days on Amazon. Thank you so much for joining me, and I hope we, we may get the opportunity to talk again soon. I hope so too. We are fortunate to have great supplies of coal and substantial supplies of hydroelectric power. The Snowy Scheme is now producing almost 20% of this winter's estimated maximum demand. Nobody would suppose that we could, by a mere wave of the hand, abandon all other means of producing power. It is the first full-scale nuclear power plant for generation of electricity in the United States. Mrs. Thatcher believes nuclear fuel is not only safe, but cleaner. Steam, electricity, and now nuclear power. It's a dramatic occasion. Electric way is the modern way to cook.